This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Long Pig and a Nice Chianti. Cannibalism, in fact, and fiction. Yes, guys, we're at that stage now. It is the last of our spooky Halloween specials, and we thought we'd really hit the ground running on this one. <laughs> I like the weed there. This was Madeline's idea from the start. <laughs> this was Madeline's like, yeah, let's do cannibalism. We should do cannibalism. And I, and I was kind of like, okay, I guess. <laughs> I should also very much, just from the way that Jules was explaining that then, I did clarify that I meant we should talk about cannibalism on <laughs> on Dissecting Dragons, not that we should be doing cannibalism. I didn't just come to Jules one day and say, Jules, today's the day. Um, <laughs> just want to clarify that. Uh, but no, I. to be honest, I mean, the reason um, why I suggested we do this topic was because um, I'm preparing again... Uh, this semester to be teaching about Frankenstein and every time I read about Frankenstein I think about Lord Franklin yeah Um, because obviously it starts with you know Arctic explorers and all that jazz and when I think about Lord Franklin um, sometimes I also think about Moby Dick um, and obviously the you know and and the cannibalism it, it all sort of it comes into that and it got me thinking of why why is cannibalism so frightening i mean like i can understand it on a logical level why i would be frightened of cannibalism but you know i wanted to explore the subject in depth because it has been used so effectively in fiction and and we haven't really talked about it because it is quite a grisly thing so to be honest i think first of all it suits our it's it's a good way to close our spooky episodes um it's a topic we haven't really touched on and it is, you know, really connected with the gothic. So um, that's why I suggested it. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't just that Madeline's got a thing about people eating other people. Wait I... a minute, hang on. <laughs> I should say, it's hmm. because I'm so scared of it that, that that's why. So scared of it, it's kind of become a writer kink. No, okay. don't call it a kink. That makes it sound weird. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Okay. Um, obviously, the usual rules of engagement uh, apply with this. So if this seems like a subject that you think you'll find upsetting, we possibly just skip this one. Yeah. Um, same with like serial killers or possession or what have you. Um, but we're not going to be going into it for gore's sake. On the other hand, we're also not going to like, really talk around the houses on this one either. Yeah. So... Um, <clears throat> Uh, we'll start off with a definition, and this is a very short biology lesson, which I'm sure you'll all really enjoy, because yes. this is how I enter the subject of cannibalism. Yeah, Jules comes at it from a very sort of, oh yes, biologically. Biologically, so For any, anyone who's not completely sure what cannibalism means, you'll know by the end of this short lecture. Jules, take it away. <laughs> Simply put, it is the act of an individual eating a member of the same species as food, which I'm sure everybody who's listening to this actually already knew. Hmm. Um, 
the, the things I found interesting is that it's actually a very common ecological interaction in the animal kingdom, and it's been well documented in 1,500 different species. Yeah. Um, it's also very well documented in humans, which we will get to later. And this mm. is both in ancient and in modern times. You know, um, I think one of the most recent cases I read was 2018. Mm. So it's not we're not talking like the days of yesteryear or anything. We're talking fairly recently. Um, and I think there are some common misconceptions around cannibalism. That one of them is that it is the result of food shortage or unnatural conditions. And while that can certainly be the case, hmm. it's not true a lot of the time. And in many species, is actually a successful survival strategy for reasons which I will go into. Hmm. Um, nor is it restricted to carnivores. It's been found in herbivores and detritivores too. So herbivores obviously eating plant matter. Detritivores generally eating things that are breaking down. So you're looking at insects and things that are eating um, dying bark and hmm. uh, microfauna and things like that. Um, and soil. In uh, this is where it, it, I find it particularly interesting. And if you think about all life really came out of the water, it kind of makes sense. But if you're looking at aquatic environments, ninety percent of all species will have engaged in cannibalism at some point during their life cycles. Ninety hmm. percent—that's not an insignificant statistic. No. Um, I'll go into examples later but a, a frog is an obvious example and i will explain a bit more about that shortly mm -hmm. um there's also sexual cannibalism um sexual cannibalism as you may have already gathered <laughs> is when you have a mating pair and one of them eats the other either during before or after intercourse yes it is possible in theory for some species to eat before intercourse um, I'll go into a bit more detail about that. You normally <laughs> see this in insects um, and in arachnids. Uh, I'm going to mostly talk about arachnids because that's what I know best. But, for example, the female wind spider starts chewing the male's head off during intercourse to make him mate faster. Um, <laughs> what, a, what an incentive! <laughs> spiders are really fascinating in this one. Um, you've also got the black widow spider. Guess why it's called the black widow spider? Mm. Um, and the red-backed spider of Australia, very poisonous, do not handle, and various others. Um, there's the, I think, the great orb spider, which spins a web that looks like a ball. Um, now, some of the times, it may be a case of male spider is going, okay, really, really need to mate, have to pass my genes on. He's probably not thinking, have to pass my genes on. He's probably just thinking the spider equivalent of sex. <laughs> um, and... You know, there's a female over there, can tell, there's pheromones, that looks like a good direction to go in for sex. Yeah. Um, if you've ever watched any David Attenborough programmes on this, male spiders trying to approach females is is blackly, darkly hu hilarious because you can, you can almost see them thinking, well, I might get somewhere, but I'm probably going to die. <laughs> you can almost see them thinking, this is like almost a little speech bubble above their heads. Um, and what happens is the male spider enters the female's web and the female... A not insignificant proportion of the time mistakes the male for food and just eats him. So he never gets anywhere. Yeah. Um, in some cases, the female will recognise him as another spider and decide that she doesn't like the cut of his jib and just eat him. Uh, <laughs> and then sometimes it's a case of, no, okay, yeah, you are kind of hot stuff and we'll get going. And then she'll think, yeah, but I'm really hungry and just eat him. The temptation is too much. 
Jesus Christ. I love how every sentence ends with, and just eat him. Yeah, and, you know, in, other in words, a sexy way. Is there, is there any scenario where she doesn't eat him? There's very, very few scenarios where the male spider then goes away and lives to mate another day. Yeah. At which um, point he gets eaten. <laughs> at which point he gets eaten. It's like, ah, oh, I did it. I passed my seed on and I'm off to find another female spider. Ah! <laughs> kind of thing. Oh, God. Um, there are also species of moths. There are types of fish. Um, there are gastropods and things as well, which also do this. Um, and... Basically, the whole sex and sex and death thing is very, very closely interlinked in the animal kingdom. Put mm. it that way. Yeah. So that's an example of sexual cannibalism. We'll get into the whys a bit later. There's also intrauterine and postpartum cannibalism and filial cannibalism. Um, intrauterine is when a female member of a species, let's take a rabbit, for example. A female rabbit has a litter of kittens in her womb and for whatever reason, she doesn't give birth to them she sort of reabsorbs them into her womb at a certain stage of gestation hmm. so she's basically internally cannibalizing them well, what what happens when is with, with great white sharks for instance i think this is great white sharks where there'll be several sharks in the womb and one shark one of those baby sharks will kill the other two baby sharks and eat them uh, that is technically filial cannibalism, which we'll get onto in a moment. Ah, okay, sorry. But I, I know it's sort of intrauterine, but it's also it's also filial. Um, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, the intrauterine and postpartum. Postpartum is obviously when an animal does give birth and then eats its young. So a pig, for example, mm. or occasionally again a rabbit. If you stress out a rabbit that's just given birth, you might stress it into actually eating its young, or maybe yeah. it will just do it anyway. Um, sometimes this is simply a case of a uh, a young animal is stillborn mm-hmm. and the natural thing for the mother to do is to recoup the energy she's lost through birth by re-ingesting that mm. which you know we obviously find quite reprehensible but actually when you think about it there are plenty of women who who do eat their placentas so yeah I was going to say that which is, is still a is actually part of the baby it's not part of the mother so there you go it's still done um and you know i have no thoughts on that if that's your bag then that's up to you well yeah i mean there are some beliefs that it does actually help stave off uh post uh what's it postpartum post i can't do you mean postnatal depression yes that's what i mean thank you (laughs) yeah and and various other things um anyway so that's intrauterine postpartum uh filial cannibalism generally means a parent eating its offspring whilst they are live viable young and it you it can also include the you know one sibling killing the other sibling so in Mm. the instance of the great white shark for example but also hyenas it's Mm. perfectly natural for hyenas to generally be born um in sort of twos and threes and usually the strongest will kill and partially consume the others that's that's normal the hyena behavior Mm. Um, and with with parents, um, there's sort of infanticide. People are not going to like this, but infanticide is actually a natural part of the animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, lions, for example, will kill cubs in order to bring the females into heat. And when a cat kills something, it will also try to eat it. So at some point they will have had a bit of a go at trying to eat the cubs as well. Mm. Um, it, it's just one of those things. 
And then there's size structured cannibalism. This basically means the big one eats the small one. <laughs> yep. So you have two members of the same species and one of them is much larger and probably a bit older because they're further along their developmental track and they need food, so they eat the smaller one. Again, normal part of the animal kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Those are various different types of biological cannibalism. It's interesting because I think, and we'll obviously go into it a little bit later on, cannibalism is seen as something which is incredibly unnatural. And you see it a lot in sort of like horror films or things like that. You know, it's even played for jokes. The idea of rabbits being carnivorous and stuff like that. The idea of like a, a deer or something like that eating another deer's flesh or stuff like that. Um, you know, these are used often as horror images which is supposed to unnerve because it feels uncanny it feels like something you shouldn't be seeing um but what's interesting is the fact that this is a fairly natural occurrence in the world yeah absolutely and there like anything in nature there are biological advantages for doing it yeah so let's get on to that bit because yeah. If you guys aren't grossed out yet, this will do it for you. Yeah, no, this, this is the part where um, <laughs> we have to have a little disclaimer here and say, look, we're not supporting cannibalism, <laughs> but we are about to go through the pros and cons of it. Yes, we're looking at the pros and cons. Uh, don't try this at home, Yeah, of course. But there are biological benefits as well as drawbacks to eating your own. Yeah. Um, so Let the benefits. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, first one... When food is scarce, individuals um, who use conspific creatures as a food source receive extra energy and nutrition. Yeah, what this basically means is um, we expend energy eating. Yeah. Mo for most of us, we probably don't expend as much energy as we'd like to eating. For example, you're eating cake. It would be really nice if you were in negative calories by eating cake, but we're not. No. However, um, you know, we it acts what that basically means uh, I, I'm sort of racing ahead here because I'm assuming people know what I know and I know that's not always the case so no. I'm going to just break it down and people bear with me so let's say we had a lovely delicious slice of chocolate cake mm -hmm. and we eat it and actually that gives us more calories than we would actually need for the process of eating the cake yeah. so you'd have a surplus of calories by eating cake which is really unfair but that's the way it is um, because you know we need a certain amount to break down cake and, you know, it's easy to break down, etc, 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 which yeah. is why you're not in negative calories. If you take something like an almond, you can eat an almond and the amount of calories it takes to chew, swallow, digest it is actually greater than the, than the, the calorific value of the almond. Therefore, it, you can eat quite a lot of almonds without isn't that, it. Isn't that the same with celery as well? Yeah, celery and, and various other things. Anything very fibrous like that tends to be. So you actually expend more energy eating it than you do by actually having eaten it. Now, if you're going for really, let's say you're in a food scarce environment, there isn't enough to eat and you need to be able to absorb the energy contained within a, another creature's cells as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Eating your own species makes sense because it's made in exactly the same way that you are. Mm -hmm. um, the proteins are formed in the same way. You're not going to have to expend as much energy breaking them down. So you are actually not going to lose energy by 
consuming them and you're not going to lose energy by then taking those broken down bits of protein etc and building it into your own cells they're already kind of shaped for task so it's kind of like a mechanic say you needed to replace the head valve or something the head gasket on your car mm-hmm. um, you can either go out and get metal and various other materials and spend lots of time and energy making it yourself or the alternative is you contact the car dealership and order a piece in that fits yeah and that's what it's like when it comes to eating a conspecific individual who is a member of your own species. Again, disclaimer, not suggesting anybody <laughs> tries this. Yeah, guys, in the world of, of... And sorry to sound Marie Antoinette, but in the world of chocolate cake, you know... Yeah, why would you eat a human? Just, just eat cake. <laughs> <laughs> just eat cake, dudes. <laughs> My dudes. Okay, so yes, there there is that. that Another benefit to this, uh, you're in a food-scarce environment. The people you're competing against for food most are members of your own species. Mm. If you eat members of your own species, you're reducing the number of people you compete against. (laughs) A.K.A. profit. (laughs) A.K.A. win. (laughs) So things like shelter, things like having a place, things like food and water and, you know, in theory, mates, depending on how specific you are with your eating needs. Mm-hmm. Um, all that competition goes down when you start eating the competition. Yeah. I mean, that that's, um, that's definitely a way of just winning any kind of competition. <laughs> Eat the competition. I mean, that really, you know, you're certainly going to end up on top. Yes. <laughs> provided you don't get arrested. Um, uh, yes. It also okay. obviously promotes faster growth rates. Uh, which protects the cannibal individual from similar predation. Yes. Um, As we talked about, size-specific cannibalism, the big one eats the small one. If you get to be the big one, the chances of you being eaten or being taken down and eaten are much smaller. Yeah. And by eating the other one, you get bigger. Yes. And because they're already primed for, you know, all the building blocks, the amino acids, the proteins and things you need to make yourself, to build yourself effectively... Mm. Um, you will do it much faster, which yep. is the growth rate. Um, as an example, I mentioned frogs earlier. Let's talk about wood frogs. During Yay. their life cycle, <laughs> <laughs> obviously frogs are amphibious. Um, the, the British wood frog is no different. And basically, during their lifespan, they spend a fair bit of time as a tadpole. Mm. I don't know if anybody still collect goes out in, in tadpole season and collects tadpoles and watches the development of the young tadpoles. No, I stopped after I saw them eating each other, and honestly, I've yeah. never never gone back from that. Never but anyway, please continue. <laughs> yes, um, it's well known that tadpoles go through a phase of cannibalistically preying on, on the others. And the ones that do this grow faster. It's very measurable. It's very obvious. They develop the hind legs and then the forelegs and they lose the tail a lot faster um, because they are literally eating what they need. And they need a huge amount of protein that that is energy efficient in a very small amount of time because they don't have very long to grow into frogs. And there are lots of things that eat tadpoles, including other tadpoles. Yeah. So, um, yes, it is kind of gross to watch, but it's also fascinating if you're slightly more biologically minded. Um, I was six. I was not biologically minded. Yeah. I, I can see the tadpole thing really scarred you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so the ones who turn to cannibalism quite quickly tend to be the ones who develop faster and become frogs, whereas the ones who obviously get eaten never become anything. 
except a source except of protein. Food. I suppose yeah. technically they become frogs, but not in, in the But not in right. the way that they thought they would. Yes. They become part of... They become part, we could get really gross we here. Could, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. Move let's, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, the final benefit. This, this boils down to natural selection. You know, the survival of the fittest. The fittest individuals move forward. So if you're looking at limited resources and competition and things like that, in theory cannibalism kind of makes sense in some circumstances because it means that the stronger individuals will move forward and hopefully breed Mm. there are big howevers to this yes so having now advertised all the benefits of cannibalism (laughs) let's get into some of the very serious drawbacks yes um so number one again this might seem very obvious but you know if you're attacking members of your own species um, you know, you are exposing yourself to greater risk of injury. Absolutely. We know that bears under the right circumstances will eat each other, but they don't hunt each other because, you know, the person you're hunting is another fucking bear. <laughs> I don't want to hunt them. That's a bear. You're a bear. That's a bear. <laughs> I'm a bear. They're a bear. My chances of getting injured quite high here yeah if i find him dead in the woods then he's fair game but (laughs) otherwise no um and okay uh another thing to consider is conspecific food sources also contain hormones etc which can impact predator development and embryonic development so let's say we have a female mountain lion or something carrying kits yeah hasn't given birth yet and the only thing she manages to catch is a male mountain lion or, yeah. or maybe another female mountain lion. That fe- the other female mountain lion might be at a stage in the development of her own fetuses mm-hmm. whereby you, the, the, the one who wins would actually be absorbing a lot of hormones that basically say don't grow, don't invest in growth, don't get stronger, don't build up protein blocks. Yeah. So it could actually potentially be harmful. I mean, I'm not saying mountain lions do that. That that would be quite unnatural conditions. But just as an example. Yeah. It's... Um, now, Jules, you, you may very well tell me that this is entirely wrong. But um, my understanding as well from some of the stuff that I studied, you know, regarding the, the tragedy that um, Moby Dick is based on was that... Uh, the you know the sailors the starving sailors started to eat one another but actually they weren't getting a lot out of it because the people they were eating were starving (laughs) as well yeah what you're largely doing when you're consuming an animal of any kind is Mm -hmm. protein You're, you're taking protein and you need protein you need protein to build up pretty much everything yeah um a certain amount of protein even helps you lay down decent bone density yeah so if you are eating something that is literally starving itself then you're not going to get much i mean fat is the main source of energy but you need the protein in order to build up your own body yeah so i think if they have yeah if they have little fat and little protein they're not really worth eating yeah to be honest you're probably using more energy eating them than you're getting out of them at that point um, okay unless you suck the bone marrow apparently that's the most yes. nutritional part this is getting gross <laughs> please continue <laughs> okay another drawback failure to recognize kin this is more of a species drawback but let's say that 
you invest in cannibalism, maybe briefly, as an individual, in order to um, thrive, and it works quite well for you as an individual, mm-hmm. and it's theory it works well for you and your immediate kin, so your mate, your children, um, and any other members of your family that might be around. If you are a member of a species which does not recognise its kin, chances are you might eat your own offspring by mistake, or your own parents, or your own, you know, siblings. I'm and sure. I'm sure I've heard a folk song about this kind of thing. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this has turned up in folk songs, yeah. and it wasn't about spiders either. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this is an issue because you want this. If the whole point of of natural selection, the whole point of us breeding and producing offspring on a biological level is to send our genes forward into the future. Yeah. So if you start removing people who also carry your genes. Um, then what you're doing is you're making your chances of you being part of the gene pool at some point in the future much much slimmer. Yeah. You know. So you're you're re- you're removing one of the chances or several of the chances. So failure to recognise kin's kind of a, a really big issue. And it's really interesting going back to our cannibalistic tadpoles that certain species of frogs have mm-hmm. tadpoles which recognise siblings from the same batch of frog spawn. So they won't eat each other. They will eat spawn from other, eat tadpoles from other frog spawn. That's good to know. So, so there you go. But yeah, one of the big drawbacks of cannibalism is if you fail to recognise kin and you accidentally eat someone who should be sending your genes forward into the future. It's not good. No. Um, let's talk about metal. heavy metal heavy metal baby yeah (laughs) and we don't mean the music um yeah one of the problems with uh with eating members of your own species is heavy metal build-up yeah someone comes along and drops a bunch of iron maiden and guns and roses on your head (laughs) it's too much too much heavy metal (laughs) um if only it was that simple no what happens is we, there's a reason we eat herb, herbivores. Basically, you've got plants which take energy from the sun, mm-hmm. and then you've got herbivores which eat the plants and take energy from the plants which take them from the sun, and then you have carnivores which eat the herbivores which eat the plants, etc. We're all getting energy from the sun, it's just we're getting it one step removed each time. Yeah. Now, if you have a carnivore that eats the carnivore, Mm-hmm. then they're getting it even further removed. So already that's not very energy efficient. Yeah. And what happens is you get heavy metals, things like cadmium, for example, build up the further up the food chain you go. Mm. So if you have something like a polar bear, which is one of the only really c- completely carnivorous bears, mm-hmm. then it doesn't really make great eating and you cannot eat its liver. Its liver is absolutely poisonous because that is where all the heavy metal builds up. It will kill you. Um, So this stuff is not good. It moves further up the food chain. There's a reason we don't tend to go, oh yeah, fox, roast fox, that'll be tasty. Because Mm. carnivores taste vile. The meat is bitter and stringy. It's not nutritious to us. It doesn't taste good. We know from, you know, millennia, of experimenting with eating stuff we're, we're, we're the relatives we're the descendants of the people who worked out what was good to eat and what wasn't and carnivals were not on that list yeah so yeah the heavy metal build-up is bad we know that heavy metal can kill you in sufficient doses 
um, and yet it travels up the food chain. That you mm. know, there's no two ways about it. So you you eat something like a bobcat or a polar bear or whatever, and it, it's not good. Mm. Yeah, which is why we eat things like rabbits and goats and yes. pigs. <laughs> Omnivores are slightly different because obviously they're getting some of their nutrition from plants and nuts and, and fungi and things like that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, and humans are technically omnivores, so the whole... I haven't really explained the title, have I? Does everyone know what I mean by the, ti- by the title Long Pig? Just explain it in case. <laughs> okay. Um, I believe it was a, an American term originally... And it kind of came out of the frontier days when people were forced on occasion into cannibalism and they used to call it long pig when they were cooking a human. Mm. So there you go, long pig. The the Chianti thing is obviously a Hannibal Lecter reference. He will no doubt come up later. (laughs) It would be really silly if we didn't talk about Hannibal Lecter when talking about cannibalism. Yes. Um, Anyway, so aside from heavy metal buildup, things like cadmium, mercury, etc., there's disease transmission. Um, if you are practicing one-on-one cannibalism, disease transmission is fairly low because there aren't very many parasites that rely on cannibalism as a method of being, you know, transmitted. Yeah. However, if you have a pack which practices cannibalism, then mm-hmm. that's one person who might have a parasite or something who comes into very, very close, very intimate contact with a group of people and might pass on parasite larvae or whatever to all of those people yeah so that that's bad um i've really boiled that down to its constituents it's a bit more complicated than that but essentially disease transmission is increased greatly when you have a group of people practicing cannibalism on one diseased individual yeah and then we have my favorite and my favorite read oh this is not good Mm -hmm. um my favorite which is prions Prions are not technically, they're not like viruses or bacteria. Um, viruses aren't technically alive. I'm, I fall into the viruses are not alive camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and prions aren't alive, but they are mutated and almost sort of calcified proteins. They're, they're proteins of the wrong shape. You will absorb them and they will do terrible things to you. Mm. Um, prions are the cause for things like Creutzfeldt Jakob disease or bovine uh, somatoform encephalopathy and also the very human one Kuru which I cannot remember what that's an acronym for but you know two out of three ain't bad people yeah this is this is bad stuff this is prions tend to accumulate in the brain and then a- basically attack your central nervous system yeah. they will give you uh, basically neurological issues they will also so break down you'll get a degenerative musculoskeletal disease out of them as well mm. um, we know about Kuru it's very well documented from the form people of Papua New Guinea who for you know cultural and religious practices did um, practice cannibalism well up until 2012 sorry well up mm. until 2012 and you would see instances of Kuru happening because if you eat somebody's brain your chances of taking on the prions are much, much higher. Mm. And then they will attack your system. It's basically what it comes down to. Um, this is bad. It, this, it, this is not good. I, th- I think it's appeared in several films as well. I don't know if you've ever seen The Book of Eli. Mm. And you have the couple who seem really nice, but they're shaking 
all the time and uh, the main character goes oh they've been eating people because they've they've clearly got an early stage of this this neurodegenerative disorder disorder yeah i think that and you you might correct me if i'm if i'm wrong um that some people have linked kuru uh with the idea of the wendigo I mean, the idea of the Wendigo is not as is depicted in most Western media, but because of the way that it's been depicted in a lot of Western media, um, it's kind of taken on a new identity outside of its original, you know, Cree or Nascapi. Um, yeah, I think origins. there is something to that. I mean, if you look at the original folklore mm. and then you look at some of the that the whole idea of, you know, it, of Endigo being a sort of half person, a twisted person who preys on other people. Yeah. I mean, they they're described as look as, you know, looking half starved. Um they have a sort of like a gray complexion, sunken eyes you know um and a strange walk as well yeah strange walk sometimes they're giants um and i again i don't know whether it's just among different different people or whether it's a later idea that because there are some ideas and i think this is more of a a later um inclusion of the idea that a wendigo was created by a person eating a person committing cannibalism I, I don't think that's part of the original folklore. Um, so if anyone knows more about this, please do. I'd love to hear about it. Um, but certainly, you know, this idea of this being that is perpetually hungry um, and just eats and eats and eats like the, the epitome of, of gluttony, but is never then satisfied. Um, yeah. And for me, it's interesting that as part of, of this cannibalism you know it goes hand in hand you know it's not just it's a malevolent creature but it's not um you know it's this it's this sheer act of desperation in order to fulfill this hunger that it yeah, won't eat it's, anything it, it's de- i think that you know whether that was a later linkage or whether there was some or- or origin type myth that we we're missing i think that does hold water it does make an awful lot of sense Mm. yeah um okay so finally uh cannibalism tends to benefit the individual in the short term but not the species in the long term the reason it doesn't benefit the species in the long term is yes it might get you through a period of famine or shortage of, of whatever kind but when you start removing variety from the gene pool then the species as a whole will suffer yeah. So yes, natural selection means that you take out the weaker individuals and the strong are the ones that go forward and pass their genes on. But cannibalism is slightly less in slightly slightly less follows the the rules around natural selection, particularly if you're 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 unable to recognise kin. So it's not yeah. the strongest, or even if you recognise kin and it's just one types of gene that is going forward, that's yeah. not good either. No. <laughs> So um so yeah as as a long term strategy it doesn't work but in the short term you know it it's nature nature's always willing to do this stuff in the short term <laughs> yeah absolutely so let's let's focus in now on human cannibalism um 
I think so far we can agree that this discussion has been pretty gross. <laughs> yes, yes, it really has. I mean, we love nature, but there's no getting away from the fact that Mother Nature is clearly a horror fan. <laughs> she really, really is. Um, uh, there are certainly so many examples of cannibalism across nature. Now, earlier on, Jules did mention, of course, that cannibalism has been seen among humans from ancient times to the modern era. So let's let's go back. Let's start ye old ye ye old times. Yeah, pre ye um, old times. Pre ye <laughs> old times before ye was even a thing. Um, <laughs> And let's sort of move up through the ages and look at examples of cannibalism. Um, so I guess we're going to start with with those old chestnuts, the the Neanderthals and the crow. How do I? Crow Manion. Manion. Why would you put a G and an N together? It's Don't ask me. Stupid. I'm Irish. I, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. To be honest, fair. Yeah. <laughs> the Irish language is just someone falling asleep on a typewriter (laughs) it's like they had six or seven sort of of those magnetic alphabet kits and someone took about half the vowels out (laughs) oh no (laughs) oh no i guess uh you know anyway sorry off off topic there we'll talk about that another time yes Um, neanderthals and chromanians um there's there's a fair bit of evidence to say that neanderthals practiced uh, a certain amount of cannibalism however as far as we can see, and based, you know, bearing in mind that we don't have complete records for any of this, it seems to have been sort of a cultural practice thing. So it wasn't like a regular thing where it was a case of, oh, you're weak, I'm strong, I'll, I'll smash your head in and we'll all have dinner tonight kind of thing. <laughs> Which, unfortunately, is kind of how the, how the Neanderthals get betrayed. Yeah. The thing with Neanderthals are they weren't our ancestors. No. We're descended on a slightly different route neanderthals and um homo erectus and various others all sort of branched off our evolutionary tree at, di- at different points mm. gigantopithecus we're not descended from gigantopithecus either um so these are all basically this is the thing people can't seem to get their head around unless they're really into evolutionary biology is the fact that they were different types of humans mm. nature doesn't make just one prototype of anything Nature makes several, um, and several different species will rise out of similar roots and from branches off a similar bough on the on the tree. And then we'll kill the competition. <laughs> but, or they'll outcompete it. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, a lot of people say, well, Cro-Magnons actually killed off Neanderthals. There's actually really no evidence for that either, except mm. the fact that the Neanderthals died out. But then if you look at Neanderthal morphology... There's, a, there's some good reasons why they might well have died out and some of them would have been birth issues because their heads were just getting too big to fit through female birth canals. Yeah. Which is a massive, massive evolutionary drawback for yeah. a creature that walks upright. Not great, not great, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but they have found, you know, skulls and things where the, the, the top of the skull has been very carefully removed, almost reverently removed, not just mm-hmm. smashed in like an egg, and, you know, there, there's evidence of tools being used inside to scrape out what's in there, which is, you know, again, we're, we're talking cannibalism, so this is gross. But that isn't that dissimilar to what certain Celtic tribes did with the bodies of, you know, fallen heroes and with 
you know, full and honoured enemies. Mm. It was a way of absorbing the strength of your enemy or your your fallen hero. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them practised it. And when we say Celts, you know, really the term Celts is kind of a linguistic device to let us know we're talking about this group of people in this area. Mm. When in reality they were as diverse and as many as, as all the Native American tribes. And they had different practices and different beliefs and things. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, cro again, the cro we are descended from them. And we have changed less than a tenth of 1% of our DNA. So we are so closely related to our early ancestors in that respect. We really haven't changed much at all. Um, but yeah, th- there's some evidence to suggest that they may also have practiced a sort of form of ritualized cannibalism. And in desperate times, actual sort of, okay, I don't really want this, but I've got to eat cannibalism. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Moving on slightly. (laughs) Moving on slightly. I've talked about Papua New Guinea. Um, Papua New Guinea, it was a way of honouring the dead. So Mm. it's not like they... If I am right about this, and if I'm wrong and someone hears this and knows, then please come and correct me. But as I understand it, this particular tribe in Papua New Guinea, what they did to honour their dead was to have a big feast where the dead, the honoured dead, was the main course. I mean... (laughs) Well, you know, waste not, want not. I know. (laughs) We all partake in in the wisdom, the life. You know, it kind of makes sense in that respect. It does, it does. I, I guess... It's very easy from the perspective of someone external to that to feel very grossed out by it and to feel that it, it's ridiculous. But from with, within the context of what ha- what's happening, it does make a sort of sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the Maori people have also practiced a form of cannibalism, I mm. think, ritually, again, but again, correct me. I'd love to study all of these things, but there are so many different practices and cultures and tribes. I literally just don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so again, if anyone knows knows more and wants to give me the cliff notes, I'm open to hearing them. Yeah, please message in and talk to us about cannibalism. We we want to hear from you. <laughs> or anything else. Or anything okay. else for that matter. It doesn't have to be cannibalism. <laughs> if we suddenly get spammed by lots of people wanting to talk about cannibalism. Very specific subject. <laughs> just the... Uh, the the CIA, the FBI, yeah. just start paying a lot more attention to us. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously there were other places. It happened in Rome, it happened in Liberia, it happened in ancient Egypt during uh, 1179 BCE. There was a great famine, and yes, people were reduced to practicing cannibalism to survive. Yeah. I feel bad for the ancient Egyptians, because people have been cannibalizing the ancient egyptians for a long time we'll talk about that in a minute moving on early modern europe (laughs) yeah um early modern europe all the way up to the 17th century and even the mid 19th century it was considered that if you ingested certain parts of another human you (laughs) would in fact cure specific diseases yeah so Everything from basically everything from diabetes, even though they didn't really know what that was, yeah, to things like syphilis, eating someone else's organs or blood or whatever. And generally, these were 
what would happen was you'd get people sort of clustering around gallows and things for this purpose. Yeah. It's, and the thing is that, you know, we say, oh, well, okay, that was in the past, but in certain areas, you know, this is still a practice where human parts are devoured as part of medicine. I mean, there's still a very real threat to um, albino people um, in parts of the African continent because they will be killed and harvested for their for for parts um, yeah. to be used I mean, it, in medicine. If you really want to freak yourself out, then you can probably find, without too much difficulty, um, uh, references to a flesh market which goes across sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And and parts of Asia as well. Let, let's be honest. This is not just... Um, I'm not trying to paint sort of certain parts of Africa as, as ignorant and superstitious because no. it happens right across the world. Yeah. And we also have to remember that Africa is a huge continent. Yeah, a humongous absolutely. continent. So where there is a large continent, there's going to be some parts of it where scary things are happening. Um, there is also just the fact that I, I mentioned the Egyptian mummies. Um, Egyptian mummies oh. got ground down for oh, all yeah. sorts of reasons. People used to smoke them in pipes. They as did. Well. They used to smoke what? <laughs> smoke them what? in pipes. Use the powders for various things. Sometimes it was paints. Sometimes it was being ingested. And yeah, that's why we don't actually have that many Egyptian mummies anymore. Because because during the Victorian period in particular, uh, it just got really popular. I think I've forgotten what they used to call it, but there was a specific name which I thought was a, ma- a, a masterstroke of, of rebranding. Because if you said, oh, well, this is ground down mummy's hand, then... but they called it something else something like attar of egypt or something like that something that sounded sort of slightly exotic like it was a mystical spice that had come from um come from come from a a far off land and it it was just no that's not what it is what that that is literally the desiccated remains of someone's hand or foot or whatever yeah and the thing that really amazes me about it is that this was also during the time where there was a huge panic about cannibalism People were like, oh gosh, this is terrible. Oh, well, no, we can't. Oh, no, no gentleman would cannibalise. Here, pass me a little bit of that Egyptian. Uh, <laughs> I need to smoke to calm myself down. Um, so, so yeah, when when we talk about the fact that there is <laughs> this cannibalism in other countries, we are not, we are not ignoring the fact that uh, <laughs> no, the British everywhere. people for a long time, not just the British, but the British people for a long time were, were really, really big for fun for funsies for for that good old egyptian corpse so yeah uh, let's move on to china <laughs> yeah see uh, i remember this one specifically this is during mao zedong's um cultural revolution whereby he took educated people out of the cities and put them to work in fields and vice versa mm. and that went about as well as you'd expect and has done for any sort of communist marxist type regime since the idea was invented and anyone tried to do anything um, which meant there was a huge famine lots of people starved many starved all the way to death mm-hmm. and i always think of young chan's wild swans where she talks about you know it's a basically a three-person biography she talks about her grandmother her mother and herself mm-hmm. she herself was an educated woman living in a city in china and she was sent out to be a barefoot doctor 
without any sort of doctor type qualifications and she worked in the fields and she tried to treat people without any training without any medicine and Mm -hmm. on one occasion a man came in threw himself at her feet and burst into tears and then sobbingly confessed how he'd been so hungry he had cooked and eaten his own baby son oh and god it, he, it's really moving the way she describes it he, he was, he's begging her to kill him because that's what he deserves he said hunger was this force and he just literally could not stop himself he was out of his own head mm. um, so yeah whenever anybody starts toting the communism thing please remember that story people because that is what you get out of it very very anti the whole sort of communism thing yeah, it doesn't enough, work. Communism <laughs> only works if everyone agrees to be part of a communist society. It doesn't work if you force it on people. No. Well, in fact, it doesn't work at all. We've never had a single example of it ever working. No. Well, people say, oh, communes, but that's a small group. Anyway, we're not talking yes. about communism today. Um, that's a horrific story. Um, and this, I mean, this wasn't that long ago. It was, what, uh, 1959 to... Yeah, yeah, is the, the three years of Great Famine in China, 1959 to 1961. I'm sure they've had others since then, but that one was the one that specifically stuck in my head. Mm. Um, yes, so that's not great. Um, there was also the unfortunate Donner Party during frontier times, uh, travelling across... Um, Canada, not Canada, California, sorry, 1846 to 1847, and they hit snow in the mountains, and they were so they were snowed in, they couldn't move. And I think the party had 78 people originally, and by the following spring, there were only 47 of them left. Yeah. Um, and they did resort to cannibalism because they just didn't have enough to eat. Yeah. Um, if you want to know more of this, I'd say go and Google it. You'll find lots, um, and some of it's pretty graphic, so be warned. Um, yeah. But that was that was a tragic sort of we're trying to survive type thing, and it has made an appearance in God knows how many films since then. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we also then have Flight uh, 571-571. Yeah, um, from Uruguay. And the pilot believed that he had reached the destination, even though the flight instruments were saying that they weren't. And he started to descent too early and drove the plane into the side of a mountain. And some people survived and they were stuck there on a mountain. And you you can guess the rest. Okay, you guys can fill that in, but you can also look it up if you want to know more. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure, actually, that Anthony Horowitz wrote a... um, a really quite terrifying horror story which wasn't it wasn't based on that but within the horror story it was there was a group of people who'd been on a flight like that who had been who had resorted to cannibalism because they'd been starving and in the horror story a detective is brought in because a young boy has disappeared he he was with his parents in a in a place um, they, as they got onto one ele- one set of elevators, he ran across and ran ran into another set of elevators. When his parents arrived at the floor that they were they were expecting him on, their son never came out. And in the other set of elevators was a group of people were survivors of this um, of this tragedy of this flight, 
um, who'd been resorted to cannibalism, who'd come together as part of a reunion, basically to remember the horrors of what they, you know, of what they'd been through. And the detective realizes that what's happened is that clearly this group of people developed a taste for human flesh. And as this boy ran into the elevator for them in the three minutes they had, they literally just tore him apart and Ugh. took parts home with him. Yeah. Which for okay. me, it, it's a horrible story, but for me, I think the most horrible part was, yeah, I can understand the sentiment. And obviously it ticks all those horror kind of ideas of what if you did develop a taste for human flesh. But I, all I could think of was it was it was greatly, it was very unjust for the for the real life people who had been through this experience and who were so utterly traumatized by the fact that they had had to, they'd they'd become friends with, you know, people or they'd had to eat people. And sometimes it was the corpses that were already there. And sometimes it would be someone died and then they'd have to eat them. And that's horrifying and traumatic. And uh, just that was the bit that made me really uncomfortable, I think. Definitely. I mean, there is a horrific film called Alive, which is based on Flight 571 as well, if anyone really wants to upset themselves. Mm. I was not a fan of that. <laughs> it was well done, but it was like, oh, <laughs> not good. Okay, moving on to serial killers very briefly, because obviously we've talked about serial killers recently, but mm. we can't really get past this without talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm-hmm. That fine, charming young man who came out of high school and then immediately started his... His, his campaign of driving across America and seducing young men back to his house where he then um, killed them, had sex with them and ate them. Hmm. That was obviously in 1978. Yeah. So not that long ago, which is, again, so scary. It's really gross. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, in, in that instance, some, okay, I, the fact that I'm about to say, in that instance, something had gone wrong. Um <laughs> that, that honestly with human cannibalism something probably has gone wrong unless you've got a serious long cultural practice of doing it and even then i'm like mm, how did that cultural practice come into be? but maybe that's me being a westerner yeah um but yeah in jeffrey Dahmer's case it was sexual gratification from eating someone else's flesh so that's yeah yeah same with um albert fish who was known by many names but also the brooklyn vampire in mm-hmm. 1870 who was a sex offender, um, targeted children and, you know, at them as well. Yeah. You'll notice I'm not going into details no. on the really, really nasty stuff. So yeah. again, yeah. people, Google is your friend. If this yeah. is what you want to know about, off you go. Yeah, but we're not going to get into it. So, okay, now that we've talked about cannibalism and obviously the fact that it has been something which has existed both ritualistically um, maliciously and, you know, as part of the general day-to-day of nature and within human history as well. Let's let's move on to fiction, shall we? Okay, okay. Um, so the question, the question that I came to you with, why is it a go-to staple for horror? What is it about oh. cannibalism which just is so scary? I think if we're talking at, at the most base level, one of our most primitive instincts is to avoid being food. Yeah. Um, we started off our evolutionary journey as Australopithecus africanus as a prey species. And the reason we started walking upright and having uh, giving birth to children whose brains had not fully developed was to spot predators. 
Um, that's why we developed opposable thumbs. It, that this whole thing of not being food is so tied into our evolutionary journey. I think whenever anything like that sort of threatens us, it just pings our amygdala. It, it, it pings the lizard brain, the part of us that remembers what it was like to be prey. Yeah, I agree. And I think also, to be honest, perhaps a reason why it is so frightening now, and not just frightening, but unnerving, is because in modern society, we've kind of been at the top of the food chain for so long that it almost feels, you know, it, it almost feels like it's unnatural for us not to be at the top. Yes, we have incidents where, you know, we'll we'll face off against bears and things like that, but we tend to, you know, you can fend a bear off with a gun if you're a good enough shot. They're actually, you know, bears, wild pigs as well, they're scary. Um, they're harder to kill than you think, guys. Yeah. We, the, Us being at the top of the food chain is, is sometimes a bit of an illusion, depending where you are. We are rather precariously balanced. We're still physically very vulnerable. We don't have claws, yeah. we don't have teeth, we don't have a special speed or agility or skill. We have literally got to where we are through cooperation, having an opposable thumb and front frontal lobes, which allow us to project how something will basically to run simulations in our brains before we actually do an action yeah exactly. but that is why we're where we are we're not there through any other special special adaptation yeah but i think we tend to sort of live a little bit like with the idea um that we're safe you know that we're this is us we are at the top um we we're okay i think it also depends where you live i, I think if you live in australia you're not under that illusion because, you know, you're surrounded by things that want to kill you. But, like, certainly in the UK, we don't really have that much in the UK that can hurt us. You know, yeah. really. <laughs> Except for oh, pigs. Oh, I'm, I'm totally... I'm totally lo- <laughs> I am absolutely totally lobbying for bringing back all the native species. You know, reintroducing and rewilding wolves and bears and things. No! Totally no! <laughs> it would actually save our country to do that. But that's, again, a different... <laughs> this different is a different subject. debate, and I will disagree on you. Our ancestors did, did everything they could to not have this. <laughs> I do they not were want wrong. them back. <laughs> anyway. They were absolutely wrong. Anyway, uh, uh, moving anyway. on. <laughs> There's something very stomach-churning about contemplating eating another person, or at least I hope there is, mm-hmm. um, or being eaten by one. Most cultures have a strong taboo against this. This is the same sort of taboo which suggests that you don't breed with your close relatives. Mm. Um, the thing with a taboo is it's just basically a thin cultural veneer. It, it genuinely is. That's something that at some point it became taboo because people noticed that there were potential ill effects. Um, because if we're, we're talking in reality, um, this ingrained way of, of thinking, if you look at it in biological terms, cannibalism, like like incestuously breeding with your with your own children or with your your very close relatives, your siblings or whatever, mm-hmm. it doesn't actually harm the gene pool until you've been doing it for many generations, until everyone's been doing it for many generations. Again, not advocating either of these things, just pointing out that in biological terms, um, we're genetically a lot more resilient than that. Yeah. But it still gives you that, or probably should give you that, that instant sort of stomach is clenched into a fist feeling of, ugh, when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it took a long time for it to start to really have an effect on Egyptian, on the Egyptian kings and queens who had been marrying their siblings 
and, and daughters, daughters and stuff like that for an incredibly long time. <laughs> yeah, for for literally hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, they were doing this. So um, yeah, again, not advocating anything like that. Just pointing out that a lot of our our concept preconceptions and things are based on well, we don't even know what they're based on. I think is is the issue. And yeah. sometimes we, I mean, let's the Celts, for example, you married brother to sister to keep the bloodlines pure, mm. which, you know, technically they, they got the wrong way around. But, you know, full marks for trying. <laughs> they tried. They were re- they, they tried. really tried. They really tried. Um, so, yeah, I think you can't look if you're looking at it from a cultural perspective, you can't apply modern thinking over the top of it and still expect to really understand anything. Mm. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm not sure how deeply I want to understand the desire to eat a member of my own species. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. There might be a number of different reasons of why it grosses and freaks us out, particularly in the West. Um, but I think it is actually very ingrained within our society. Um The idea that someone has flipped and become a predator, I think, is also really scary particularly one as intelligent as you who has opposable thumbs um and who you might not immediately recognize yeah Yeah. i mean if it's if it's the whole idea of you know the killer in the dirty trench coat kind of thing or Mm. you know the predator in the dirty trench coat that's not a thing this is a guy who gets up in the morning goes to his nine to five job helps his little old lady neighbor with her cats and what have you and then just prefers to eat humans. Yeah. I uh, think that's, it, that's disturbing. I think it also really freaks people out because, of course, you know, we talked about evolutionar- evolutionarily. We are where we are because of cooperation. Yeah. The idea that then someone within that, that that's how we survive. We survive on working with one another. The idea that someone within that circle might then attack out of the blue um is is really scary and i think it's kind of what produces figures like dracula um you know who now it's hard to think of dracula now because everyone knows who dracula is but think about it in in dracula's original conception this idea of this well this supernatural being who isn't just you know human looking but is is superior to humans um the idea of being treated like chattel uh particularly i think is also very much a response to the understanding of how we have treated animals um particularly animals that we farm uh and the fear that that could be us i think that's a very real fear yeah yeah, definitely. And uh, there is always part of us that remembers being food. I think yeah. it's what it comes down to. Yeah, I agree. I think that there is an innate, you know, knowledge within us that that goes, "That's scary. Don't do that. Let's avoid that." Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I and I think we we fear the idea of being in that vulnerable position. I also think we fear the idea of being in a position where we might be forced to cannibalize particularly cannibalize people we know yeah i mean like i don't know about you jules but like i don't like eating things which still have faces like i know uh, where it comes from and I, this this is just me but you know like it was 
<laughs> it's like when people are like, here's the fish, and I'm like, I don't want it to still have a head. And I especially don't want it to still have eyes. I don't want to see its face. <laughs> it's like I have eaten fish like that, but it's not my most favourite thing, I've got to say. Yeah. And, and uh, Alan said when he was in China, he sent me a picture of what he'd, he'd ordered the chicken. And what had arrived was not chicken. It was chicken's feet and a chicken's head, which had been stood up on the end of its neck with its beak open and its eyes slitted shut. And I'm like, that cannot possibly be your food. <laughs> it still had feathers. No, 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 no. Yeah, see, I don't want that. And again, this is from a very Western perspective. I get that. And I'm not, I'm not squeamish about things either. For instance, like, we have ducks in our garden and our yeah. neighbours... My neighbours love love the ducks. We, they feed the ducks. Everyone loves the ducks, and uh, they're like, "Oh, we, you know, since we've been feeding the ducks and we 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 love watching these ducks, we can't we can't eat duck anymore." And I'm like, "Ha ha ha! I can, I definitely can. I can look at a duck and be like, that's a lovely duck, and I will still eat duck later that day. I'm really not. I'm not weird about that. I just don't like." I don't like faces on my food, and I think that's. <laughs> I think I'd certainly find it very difficult to eat a person, <laughs> particularly if I can still see their face. Yeah, that's that's weird. Thank you for making it even weirder. You're welcome. You're yeah, welcome. Okay. I, I need you to understand how when this question came to me, I had to agonise about this and get really freaked out, which is why I brought it to you. <laughs> There's a really weird backhanded compliment in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, okay, very briefly, some examples of cannibalism in fiction. Now, obviously, the go-to is Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris, featuring Hannibal Lecter, the yes. cannibal. Um, a serial killer. So he's coming from the position of maybe not sexual gratification by eating people, but something's definitely gone wrong there because his yeah. preference is, is human. Did you did you ever watch the new series of Hannibal? Um, I think I watched a couple of episodes and didn't really get into it. Yeah, I I tried watching it because everyone was talking about it. Um, in the end, I just couldn't, and part of that was because it made me feel unreasonably hungry. Like <laughs> they made extra efforts to make the food that Hannibal prepared look really nice, and I'm like, oh, that looks delicious. It's people. It's meant to be people. And like that was really uncomfortable. And I'm sure that's what they were going for. But yeah, I'm sure that I mean, combined with to... everything else, just I was like, no, nah, this is not for me. I think the thing with Hannibal Lecter is he was kind of this Renaissance man. He spoke several languages. He enjoyed literature and classical music. Mm. He spoke very well. He was obviously very intelligent. He knew his philosophers and things. He knew mm. how to get into people's skins in more ways than one. <laughs> uh, no, and he was Jules. also. I'm so sorry I couldn't leave that there on the table. Uh, obviously, I'm going to hell. Um, but that he was also an extremely good gourmet cook. So sort of the, the cordon bleu school of cooking. Yeah. And you'd see it sometimes in some of the later films and things. I'm not surprised they did that in the series because that is that that is really an ingenious sort of dichotomy of, oh, look, this amazing food. It, yeah. It's a person kind of thing. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, that's not good. Yeah. Um, film I saw when it came out originally, and obviously a few times after that, is Ravenous, which is partially based on the oh, what's it called? On the Donner Party because it's set mm -hmm. in sort of the eighteen hundreds, 
and partially based on a, a frontiers man called Alfred Packer, who later confessed to being a cannibal <laughs> and having developed quite a taste for human flesh and sort of just lived out in, in the wilds in sort of um, borderland California um, mm -hmm. and um, et travellers. It's a really disturbing mm -hmm. film as well. It's sort of played for laughs, it's darkly comedic and it has an amazing score, but it's also incredibly disturbing. <laughs> Oh, don't like it. <laughs> um, we also obviously get a lot of cannibalism as well as a whole bunch of other fun things in um, fairy tales. Like, particularly German fairy tales have a lot of cannibalism, Jules. Oh, my God. I, I spoke to um, one of Alan's, you know, German counterparts years ago and... He was like, he was kind of like, those are not fairy tales. You're not telling the fairy tales correctly. And then he would sort of say, no, this is the fairy tale I learned as a child. And it's, it's kind of like, it was really, it's like, okay, I, you know, and this is, this is from someone who's gone and read the original Grimm fairy tales, you know, the Bavarian mm -hmm. version of Snow White, for example. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, that's really disturbing that there is no moral there. That is literally the boy had his thumbs cut off and eaten by his mother. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jules. But yes, cannibalism in fairy tales. Snow White, the queen, eats Snow White's heart, or she thinks she's eating Snow White's heart. It's actually a deer's heart. Yeah. Um, Hansel and Gretel, they're locking Hansel up. Gretel is being trained as a servant, and the witch intends to eat Hansel. Yeah. Um, and th there are others. There's the, the robber bridegroom, for example, whereby he marries wealthy young women, then kills them and eats them. Yeah. That's a really gruesome one. And, you know, there are there are loads and loads of others. There's a lot of cannibalism. There's a lot way. of cannibal. Like, th this is the thing. Like, if you want... Again, I, I, I'm going to regret saying this sentence. If you want bestiality, <laughs> you go to French fairy tales. Mm. <laughs> We've got a fair amount of that there. Um, and, and, you know, necrophilia and stuff like that. Um, though actually, to be honest, it's the same in German. And German German fairy tales have a lot of cannibalism. I wonder whether I wonder whether there was some sort of incident, some sort of famine, which perhaps gave birth to these stories. What what the origin is? Yeah. Maybe fairy tales are scary, guys. <laughs> yes. Um, again, the. The Donner Expedition, the Donner Party, um, inspired a book called The Hunger, which Stephen King recommended sort of by blurbing it. And I sort of, I can go 50-50 on Stephen King's recommendations because half the time I love them and half the time I'm like, don't know why you liked that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we don't have exactly the same taste in books. But The Hunger was really, really good. And it is literally the whole sort of, yeah, this is what happened. We set out with these bright hopes. We got snowed in. Everyone started to starve to death. And no, oh, I guess we're going to eat the dead now. Yeah. And, but it's sort of played in a more horror type way. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, obviously, American Horror Story yeah, touched on this. It did. I mean, I only watched the first couple of seasons of American Horror Story because I felt it got a bit repetitive. But when it was on point and did something really gross, it really did it. Yeah. Um, Soylent Green. 
Yes, the cannibalism of the future, where we grind people up and feed them to the next generation, which you also see in things like The Matrix, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's, oh God, it's in various other things. I mean, to be honest, that was what started the, the whole uh, BSE thing back in the 90s. Um, was the fact that we were taking dead cows and grinding them up and feeding them to the next lot of cows. Yeah. And cows do not naturally eat other cows. And obviously you've got things moving up the food chain like prions. So, yes, not good. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is still practised. People are going to hate learning about this, but, you know, carp, koi, beautiful koi, Japanese koi carp. Yeah. Not just from Japan. Most of the time, they are fed on the the mashed up, grinded up, failed carp, the ones that aren't beautiful enough. Yeah, they are. The one thing I will say about that is that koi will actually eat each other in natural circumstances yeah. as well. Yeah, no, I I I understand that. You know, um, obviously, what happened with with the cows was that this that wasn't really natural feed for the cows, um, but it is something which is still done among other species to this day. And again, I do think that maybe part of the horror of cannibalism, which you sometimes get whenever you get stories which are set, you know, on a large industrial scale, is it is a it is a commentary on this is what we do to animals. How would we like if it was done to us? Yeah, or now you have this little value. This yeah. is this, the dystopian. It's nearly always a dystopian future, isn't yeah. it? I mean, um, it turned up in Cloud Atlas as well. One of the Cloud Atlas is six novellas torn up and stitched roughly back together in different orders, mm. and one of them was a futuristic sort of uh, new uh, sewer whereby fabric, basically fabricants, people who were considered not human, were in this sort of indentured servitude and mm-hmm. once they had they had ascended they thought they were going to sort of like i've been a good servant i'm going to heaven kind of thing but what mm-hmm. was actually happening was they were literally being butchered and then fed to the new replicants it's very disturbing that is that's horrifying um and i <laughs> that's another thing is that um whenever you do get stories of you know cannibalism and things like that um there is often then this division of class that comes with it as well which i think is um like i know it's a joke but there's even a joke in monty python and the holy grail (laughs) which which is the knights all on their trek and there's just this little commentary it's like um where they stayed for the night and they ate sir robin's minstrels You just see the little shepherd's crook just grab the minstrels in the picture and then you hear a little yay! (laughs) And it's a joke. But if you think about it, that's horrifying. It it is horrifying. I think that's why it's so funny. I Maybe I always felt like they at the minstrels because the minstrels were annoying them with their theme well, songs uh, yeah, for Robin. I, th- I think that's what it was. Is that the, But that's even worse. Like as a joke, it's funny. But then you think about it, it's like what's actually happening is there was a group of people who were paid to do a certain thing, and the other people got so annoyed with them that they killed and ate them, yeah. and then celebrated. 
they celebrate jewels. So, yeah. <clears throat> um, okay, uh, what about Kronos, uh, Kronos and Saturn? Yeah, it, and various other titans in both Roman and Greek myth um, mm. where they et their own children or they et other members of their own species, they et other titans. And partly I think this echoes the fact that cannibalism has been going on for a long time because it is actually an, an, a biological process that is sort of, if not embraced, tolerated by the animal kingdom. But also I think that was a passage about how you know everything is everything will die eventually as yeah. well but combining those two things together you know <laughs> time will consume you effectively yeah absolutely it's it's quite interesting because obviously Kronos ate all of his children but for Zeus who was whisked away and then yeah. Zeus ate his own one of his lovers yeah um when he found out she was pregnant um and then Athena burst out of his own out of his out of his head um which I feel like is really like I feel bad for the lover because she doesn't get to be reborn (laughs) no no so yeah you do get it a lot in sort of Greek mythology as well but I think it, it sort of appears in various mythologies as well the idea of 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 cannibalism um and the way it's framed is always really interesting for me because obviously with Kronos, you know, this was about f- defeating the potential, you know, opposition, which for me was really funny because, you know, you know, Kronos, a great way to make sure that you don't have any children who will rise up against you is to not have children. Yeah. But no. <laughs> His oh, approach no. instead. <laughs> I'll just eat them. I'll eat just them. eat them. I'll just eat them. Um, so yeah. Okay. So I think it's time to wrap it up. I think we've we've spoken a fair amount about cannibalism now, both real and in fiction, about why it's so scary, why it haunts us. Um, I guess before we go, we should probably address how we've used it in our own writing. <laughs> Um, that's a simple one for me. I don't think I've used it at all. Yet. 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 <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think. Um, I'm sure I've got a vampire novel in me somewhere, but that's probably as close as I'm intending to get. Yeah, certainly I now. think... It's, it's, it's certainly... I don't think you've written about sort of flesh-eating vampires, but I get... Uh, sorry, flesh-eating cannibalism um, i'd love to write a zombie novel actually thinking about it but even so that's a, a step removed as well isn't it so yeah but like I, I i guess there's an idea of sort of you know like psychic cannibalism yeah i mean there's, there's lots of there's lots of feeding and whatever but it's not it's not literally sort of one human eating another yeah so um i haven't gone there yet you haven't On the gone other there hand, yet madeline <laughs> yes Madeline has. Madeline, Madeline has, has gone there. Um, obviously, <laughs> Zachary has eaten a few people. Most of the Night Patrol have eaten a few people. Um, why have they eaten people? Why have I made this decision? 
I think the idea behind this decision was to show how far removed from humanity they were. Yeah. That this wasn't just, you know, that that they were, that they had become, that they were the, the sort of above humans on the food chain, that they were the ultimate sort of predators, um, which nothing could stand up to, and that they were the embodiment of horror, that people were genuinely afraid. So I think they it, it had to be about be, not just killing, but being eaten as well. Um, in order to really frame the idea that these were totally inhuman figures. Um, which is meant to sort of parallel the fact that Zachary as a, is a very human person, but in his Night Patrol form, he has eaten a bunch of people. <laughs> is this forgivable? Is it not forgivable? Is it okay that he only ate criminals? You know. well, he seems really okay with it when he's back to being human. That's a th- certainly in the first book. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's just what I do when I'm a dragon. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> in that certainly, that yeah, there has been this sense of separation, which again, I think is the idea that the night patrol form is the, is the monstrous part. Um, yeah. And it's quite interesting. There's a bit, obviously, in the second book where he's, he, without wanting to give too many spoilers, there is a situation whereby Zachary is not quite himself and he's eating people only half transformed. Um, And as a consequence of this, because he's eating them raw, um, he does end up, you know, vomiting most of it out again. See, when you said cannibalism initially, let's do one on cannibalism. I went straight to that scene in my head. Which is one of the grossest scenes I've ever read. And bear in mind, I read about 200 books a year. That's really yeah. saying something. Yeah, it's obviously an incredibly horrifying scene. Um, and the particular horror of it was that he was half transformed. Which is that, you know, to to then say that there is no... There's no nothing to hide behind here. It's not that he's in a beastly form and therefore has become a beast and acts as a beast. Um, he's... He's in his human form. There is, there's no hiding what he's doing now. There's no hiding the horror of what he's done. And this thin veneer of, oh, but I only ever killed criminals. And yeah, maybe I chewed on them a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, it, you can no longer hide behind it. He is so, he has become this monster entirely, um, whether he's in this beastly form or not. And it is, it is meant to be horrifying. Um, and then that question will arise, is there anything that he can ever do that will redeem him? Um, and who and who gets to redeem him if, you know, if that does come up to it? Would one person forgiving him actually make his actions forgivable? Forgivable. Forgivable. Um, so yeah, it, it was horrifying. And the whole idea of the Night Patrol actually came to me when I was walking home one day. I was in Holland, um, in Central, um, in uh, Den Haag, and I was walking home and it was, evening was falling and a clock tower, a clock bell started to go. And it was mostly deserted. Most people had already sort of 
started to disperse and go home. You know, people were at home having dinner and I was on my own and I was passing these huge sort of gothic, this huge gothic clock tower which began to ring. And as it, as the bell began to toll, I thought in my mind, I've got to get home now. I've got to rush home before the monsters come out. And this whole idea that past a certain time, the streets no longer belonged to people, but the things that hunted people um, came to me. And then I thought, what if the things that hunted people were sometimes people as well? So, yeah. It's horrifying. It's really, really scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think you were going for horror there, so well done. I I think I succeeded. I think I succeeded. (laughs) Definitely. Right, we have overrun slightly, but I think we have thoroughly canvassed cannibals, so... Yes, canvassed cannibals. And this is the end of our Halloween special. So to everyone out there, we hope that you guys are have a fantastic Samhain, Halloween um, or upcoming bonfire night depending how you all celebrate it and before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation um, Jules have you got one for us? I have actually and it is very Halloween appropriate um, it's so Halloween appropriate I could actually do an episode on this on its own but future ones this is a book called Rise Headless and Ride by uh, Richard Gleaves. Um, if you are part of Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. If not, you can get it on audiobook, paperback, and ebook. And this is basically a reworking of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Um, it's set roughly modern day and it follows the young Jason Crane, who is a descendant of Ichabod Crane. Um, when he's forced to return to the place which came to be known as Sleepy Hollow and um, everything is not good there there are things that he's inherited a lot of stuff from his ancestors and you know Brom Bones' ancestors etc mm-hmm. and it it's really interesting it's a great it's semi-YA but I think it's very accessible to adults as well and I think the series I mean there's four books um, as you go along they get more sort of adult in theme as um, Jason Crane grows up mm. and they are just really really good I, I like Gleaves' style he's he's quite quirky, he's funny um, one of the side characters is gay, but two of the side characters are gay um, and it, you know, it generally it's just inclusive and kind of what I genuinely think this is quite an accurate look inside the mind of a teenage boy a, a, a good a good teenage boy, you know, a nice guy but still a teenage boy a 17 year old boy um yeah it's really good and yes there is a headless horseman of course there's a headless horseman nice very good (laughs) excellent halloween read and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening we hope you've enjoyed these halloween specials and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. 
Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 